The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now for our featured presentation. Okay, so Phil, welcome back to How Is This Movie. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Dana. Great to be back with you. So last week we were talking about a lot of the films that that inspired you to want to be a filmmaker. We began to touch on certain films that influenced you. What I want to talk about this in this episode is you're 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 done with high school. You're you're looking at the future. You want to yes. go to film school. What do you do first? What is the first step? So I have to back up a little bit before that on the timeline. So as I was becoming more and more obsessed with movies and directors and reading everything I could get my hands on about these guys that I admired, my dad had a Super 8 camera. It was just a little kind of box fixed lens, of course, no sound, super cheap Kodak. But I realized that, you know, you could shoot a little movie with that thing. And so I gathered my friends and we started doing little silent films, little, you know, two, three minute silent films. And of course, instead of editing, <laughs> cause I couldn't edit it. So I would do a lot of long takes. Like I said, I noticed Mr. Spielberg loved to do. And, but I'd also, whenever I had to edit, I would stop and then we'd move the camera to the next angle. And then on, I'd go one, two, three, and then everyone would start acting as I pressed the button. And we were literally editing in camera. So I started doing that. And then I saved up some money and was able to, I literally had a paper route. Yes, I know. It's, it's as cliched as it gets, but I did. And I saved up and I got a Canon Sound Super 8 camera. That took me quite a while, but I, but I got that. Um, and I got a projector for Christmas and, um, and a little editor for my viewer, for my grandparents. And I started making fairly elaborate Super 8 films in high school. So probably before I graduated high school, I had made, I don't know, 15, 16 short films that the longest one was 55 minutes long. So I was making half an hour ones, 20 minute ones, 35 minute ones. And I had this group of kids that loved doing it with me. And we would just jump in the car and film scenes and come up with stories. And we did a horror film and we did a sci-fi film and we did, um, uh, a comedy and we did, uh, uh, Oh, we, we did a play on some classics, um, classic, uh, stories. And we just, whenever we could, we would, that became our hobby. And, um, I would film it and edit it and I could put music on it and then we'd screen it at school. And so, you know, every few months I had this little built in audience of all the people that had been in it and all their friends. And we would, you know, get a classroom and, and screen it, whatever we had made. So before I even got out of school, I'd already made a, a bunch of films and I built miniatures and I mean, it got pretty elaborate. And so I um, said to myself, well, you know, you couldn't get into a uh, film school at that time as a freshman. You, you couldn't apply until it was your junior year 
uh, I was from Southern California. So I originally went over to UCLA and I actually, in my first two years there, studied a lot of acting and theater. I know, I knew Coppola had done that and he actually came from theater and he actually went to UCLA. So I was like, I, my hero, one of my heroes, so Stephen didn't, didn't, you know, went to, I think Cal state or something like that. Um, but, but didn't go to film school. So, so Coppola was the UCLA's hero and Lucas was USC's hero. So my guy was Coppola. So I went to UCLA um, and I applied my end of my sophomore year for film school and I continued to make super eight films, but you couldn't show any super eight films that you'd made to get into film school. You, you had to write an essay and blah, 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 and all fill out forms and get letters. Letters of recommendation were a very big thing, but I didn't know anybody in the film business. So I didn't have any letters of recommendation. So I applied to UCLA and USC. And so to me, like literally from the time Jaws hit me, you know, at 13, 14 years old, I was, that's what I was going to do. It was just, that was it. And, and luckily my parents were supportive of it. And I think probably once they saw all those pictures I took of Jaws and put on my bulletin board, <laughs> they really realized that I was pretty obsessively serious about it. And then once I started making the Super 8 films and kept gathering everybody up and actually finishing them and showing them and they, they knew that it was a very, it wasn't just something, a, a fad, a passing fancy of mine. It was a deadly serious uh, thing for me. You know, that's my going crazy when Apocalypse Now didn't win Best Picture because it was all very deadly serious for me. So I, I really, I mean, I love doing it, but I just had to be a director. But I applied to USC and UCLA. I wanted to go to UCLA, but I backed myself up with USC. And I got rejected by both. I got the, the rejection letters on the same day, popped them open all cocky, thinking, well, you know, I've made all these films and I wrote all about it and da 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 da. And, you know, thinking, you know, how could I not get in after how much, you know, I've been time and effort I've been putting into this and it did not get into either one. And so I just was stunned. At UCLA, the way it worked was you couldn't reapply. You only got one chance at applying. And if you didn't get in, that was it. But at USC, you could reapply. So um, I transferred to USC. Didn't want to, but I did. Just did a semester there of general education, waiting to get in to take a second shot at it. And while I was there, what I did was, since I'd taken all my undergrad stuff at UCLA, I took a bunch of film classes that you could, that you could take, you know, even if you weren't in the major, you know, taught by film professors, you know, kind of general film studies, Hitchcock 101, stuff like that, that were considered electives, but they were taught by the, by the major, you know, I looked in the catalog and I saw that they were taught by the guys who also taught the editing class and the cinematography class or the screenwriting class. They also had to teach a few classes to the outsiders as it, as it were. So I took all those classes. I took five of those classes with those teachers and I poured it on. I mean, so as everyone else are kind of like fraternity and sorority kids looking for an easy grade, because all you got to do is watch a movie and write an essay. I would do these epic essays and I would, you know, ask questions and raise my hand and become like the obnoxious, you know, film kid. And I also ended up for quote unquote extra credit, made a couple of super eight films and showed them in those classes. Because even though you couldn't audition to get into the school with Super 8 films, there was nothing against showing these teachers within the context of a class work I had done and specifically tailored to what they were teaching. So if it was a Hitchcock teacher, I would do like a little Hitchcock short. And if it was, you know, 
uh, I don't know, you know, cinematography teacher or, you know, whatever the course might be European, I would do like a little kind of Scorsese short and they'd be like, how long have you been doing this? Are you in our film program? I was like, no, like, oh. And so I would explain to all my teachers that I didn't get in and I've been making films since I was a kid and I've made so that and they're like, oh, I said, but boy, because I knew letters of recommendation were the whole thing. Well, I got those teachers to write me letters of recommendation to their own film school. And of course, those teachers were on the committee that decided who got in the film school. That's awesome. So they wrote letters of recommendation to themselves for me, unbeknownst to each other, and I got in. So that's how I ended up having to work the system at USC because I just, I didn't have any, you know, any industry connections. So I really had to basically take half a year to audition and, and by putting in the work in film classes. So that all worked out. And then I got it. And that's how I got in film school. So film school. Yes. Tell me about, tell me about your expectations. Maybe for the first week you've taken some, some, I like to maybe use the word prerequisite courses, the elective courses that you took that were, yeah. that were available. They weren't filmmaking. They were more film studies. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what your anticipations were and what the reality was for the first week or two that you, you started sure. film school? Sure. Well, the, you know, again, this is the eighties. So, I mean, it's a very different time. You're still working in film. You're not working in digital, you know, you're editing on film. You're editing on movieolas and Steenbecks, everything splices and, you know, the old school splicing tape and cement and all that kind of thing. So you're really dealing with a, a very kind of different thing than anyone going to film school would be dealing with now. But I was surprised by how little of it was hands-on filmmaking. Um, and again, I think looking back on it, it's expense, right? Because film, they have to provide the film and the cameras and the lenses and the thing. They don't have every, enough for everybody. And, you know, so they really doled out the filmmaking experience very slowly. And in fact, I ended up having to stay in film school um, for three years because that first semester I didn't get in. And then I stayed an extra semester so that I could get to do, you know, my final student film, which was the one Spielberg saw, uh, which back then was called a 480. They just did it by numbers. And, and that half an hour film was the one that got me my first job. And I knew I needed that film, but that's the end of the story. So at the beginning of the story, they really put you through a lot of rudimentary, like, you know, what's an F stop. And as if film school was being taught and I understand why, but for me, what was surprising was as if you had never touched a camera, even a still camera. Now I had been taken, as I mentioned earlier uh, last week in our, in our podcast together that I was the yearbook photographer. So I've been taking yearbook pictures in seventh grade. So, I mean, taking pictures and F stops and, you know, exposure and lenses and all that stuff. I had been used to through through still cameras. Now it was the first year was or first semester I should say was really rudimentary, and I was really surprised because I wanted to get into it. I wanted to get my hands on a camera and start shooting and editing and get feedback and do. But it was very slowly paced out. Now in the digital era, now I wonder, and I have no idea if if it's a faster pace or if they still really take it baby steps at a time. But I, I was ready to dive in. And again, for whatever reasons, I had made all those Super 8 films before I went to film school. I was going backwards. It was kind of like they were going back talking to me about, you know, exposure and f-stops and 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 lenses and and you know film runs at 24 frames per second oh. in slow motion it runs at 48 frames per second. Stop motion, it's what I'm like, really? I mean, you could read this anywhere. And and I was really surprised. Um, 
But then finally we got to make our our Super 8 films, which which was the first thing they had you do. And again, I was surprised by this. They wouldn't let us use sound. So sound film, I mean, so that you could do sound. You had to shoot your movie on silent film, but you could bring a, a recorder in, like a tape recorder, a cassette recorder back then, and play music and effects and stuff like that or voiceover against your movie, but not interlocked. So you literally had to go one, two, three, and turn on the projector and your recorder and hope you kind of had it in sync. And I was like, you guys, you know there are sound cameras with a stripe on it that you can, and I had one, but I, they wouldn't let me use it. Now, I appreciate they were trying to get us how to do visual storytelling. They didn't want us to rely on dialogue because, you know, obviously people would just start shooting scenes of people sitting at a table talking and they wanted to make you tell a story visually, which I thought was excellent that they did that. So I had, was totally for no dialogue because I under, understood that, that, and they claimed that they were doing that on purpose to make us visual storytellers as opposed to dialogue storytellers. And that was a really great discipline. I loved that class. But man, they really forced you technologically into a very archaic, even for then, system that you didn't need to do. But anyway, so that was a little bit frustrating. It frustrated all of us. All the students were like, why are we having to do this? It may have worked in the 60s, but Jesus, you know, can we? But nope, they stuck to their guns. Again, I've got a lot of questions about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many how many students are in your class and are you with these students day in and day out? I mean, are there? Yeah. yeah OK. Yeah. It's a it's a kind of a, you go through school with the same group. So it, the school was like 250 people all in. But I'd say um, maybe 200 of them were grad students. Very few undergrads, maybe only 50 total, maybe even less grads, undergrads. So I was an undergrad. Most people in the film program are, are graduate students. Um, at that time, again, I, I don't know what USC is doing right now. So, you know, it was unusual to get in as an undergrad and you, um, so there was like a, a class of like, I don't know, like 30 kids or so, you know, um, maybe forties, like class of 20 and 20 spread out over two different teachers in the super eight program. And, and then you would go forward with like those 40 students all the way through mix of grad and undergrad all the way through, you know, your years. So yeah, and some were like in screenwriting and some were in producing. They weren't all film production. Some were in critical studies. So the, the, the amount in production was, was not a huge number. I mean, I'm trying to think like my year, it maybe was only, I don't know, 60 or 70, if, if even that in production. What are the personalities like? Are most people introverted or extroverted? You know what I'd say back in my era, it was a kind of a 50-50. There was some really kind of like more internalized kids that were like made things that were more intimate and small and a lot of like animation and stop motion and, you know, interesting kind of more studies, mood studies and stuff like that. And then there were the more kind of outgoing and gregarious, you know, kind of like filmmakers that, you know, that probably were considered more the commercial guys, you know, that wanted to tell, um, tell more typical, um, narratives, but it was a, you know, overall it was a pretty rambunctious group, at least the ones I hung out with. The, the people that I ended up gravitating toward were pretty ambitious and aggressive and went for it. And, you know, you really, it was very, very competitive. The thing that was unfortunate about film school for in my era was it was the, the way, this was the old film school at USC before they built the new building that Zemeckis and Spielberg and everybody helped finance. They have a huge, beautiful digital facility now. This was in the old barracks. There were old World War II barracks. Uh, this, the school George Lucas went to, in fact, 
his, uh, the entire editing room was graffiti and there was still George Lucas graffiti up there. And I shot one of my student films with the same one he shot THX one, one, three, eight on, um, with the same camera. And, and, and so it, it was very, very competitive. Um, it was competitive for equipment. It was competitive for crew members. It was competitive because they didn't have enough to go around. So even though you were at what was considered, you know, at that time it was NYU, UCLA and USC were the three big ones. And, and, so on, and really USC was still considered, you know, the, the bigger of, of the three at the time this is again, early eighties. I was really shocked by how a uh, little camaraderie and how much, uh, it was like, I'm going to beat you out. There was in school, but I found a group of guys and gals that, that were really into it and that supported each other. And, and we found a, a, a good gang of people that I made my films with and helped them on their films. Cause that's the way you did it. You, you worked for and with each other. And so that, that ended up being good once I found my little niche of people, but it was, it was a really, uh, pretty competitive and, um, not very positive environment to tell you the truth. And that, I mean, that really was the next question I was going to have is, is how competitive was it? Um, it was cutthroat, man. I mean, people, and the thing was, is that what you would do is you'd shoot and then they'd show your dailies and then everyone could critique you. So the whole school would get together in this big auditorium and they would just rip on you. And I was like, I, I get being constructive, like saying, Hey, did you think of this? Or what about that? Or if you're having trouble with that actor, maybe try this or suggestions. But this was like, that sucked. And you guys don't know what you're doing. And da, da, da. it was like, it was weird. But you know, what's funny about it, Dana, is it's not that different from the film business. Yeah. I mean, I thought about it later on and I thought, wow, you know, the whole, there's a lot of schadenfreude for failure. Oh, saw your dailies didn't come out too bad. You're like, what the fuck? Like, what is it? Like, why are you, I'm not here to beat you. I'm just here to try to become as good a director as I can. What, what's the deal? But there was a lot of that. And, um, like as if only a few of us were going to make it in the end and the rest were going to get left behind, like some sort of competition, which funnily enough, it kind of ends up being, uh, in the end, the way they structure it. In fact, now that I say it out loud, it is a competition in the end, inadvertently. But um, it's very, I realized USC was at the time, again, I cannot speak to the way the school is now, but at that time was very cutthroat and competitive and aggressive, just like the business. And if you failed, they ripped you. And if you did well, they kind of like, okay, well, we'll see next time. Now I've got two questions, but I'm going to give them to you one at a time. Mm. The first one is, how does the grading structure work in film school? What do you have to do to pass each semester? Are you taking written tests? Are you taking writing essays? Like, how does the grading structure work in film school? You know, it's funny. The courses that I remember the best, obviously, were the ones that were hands-on. So, for instance, Super 8, you made five Super 8 films. They rated each one. They would give you an A, a B, a C, or a D on your film. And um, that's just, they, and it was arbitrary, just like a critic would. They'd be like, you know? you, uh, the storytelling didn't make sense. Uh, the acting wasn't good enough or the, you know, your editing was sloppy or you'd, you know, so you get a C or you'd be like, Oh no, that was tight and well done. Good beginning, middle and end. You'd get a B or an A, you know, so it was really, but they did try to grade as I recall, not based on taste, but based on, were you executing the lesson, which was like, so when they'd be like, okay, this time we're going to work on non-linear storytelling, you know, so like Citizen Kane, where you're telling in flashbacks and you're doing this, or this time we're going to work on suspense or this time, you know, so each film, they would kind of give you a goal. So, you know, you would kind of, you would get a sense. And it was pretty easy to see, you know, when films were clicking and not clicking, they were all, they ranged, the films were only like 
four or six minutes long. They usually weren't that long. I mean, mine, I don't know. I don't think I, made, I don't think I made one that was shorter than 20 minutes, but that was just my thing was to go for my, my first film. In fact, my website, you can see some of these films on Phil Juano, uh, director.com. There's uh, a section called, I think USC film school or something like that. And you can see four of my super eights and then the next semester, my 16 millimeter black and white. And then my final film, which is the one that they make you compete for last chance dance, which is the one Spielberg's shut. So anyway, if any of this is of any interest to click for a few minutes, a bunch of these films are on my website. So, you know, it was, it was pretty arbitrary. Then you'd have a screenwriting course and it was the same thing. The teacher would just decide whether he, I think it's a lot like if you're in a creative writing program, you know, they just kind of decide whether you're growing or whether you're, you know, where you rank creatively speaking, same thing, cinematography, same thing for editing. You know, you, they'd give us like one time they gave us a whole bunch of raw footage from uh, an old, old, old TV show called Gunsmoke. And you had to edit a sequence from it with no knowledge of what it was or wasn't. You just had all the dailies and you had, and, and you could see like people who struggled and you could see like people who you went, Oh, that, that works. That's well done. Or, you know, it, it, so it was, it was kind of, it was, it was based on merit and I thought it was pretty fair. Was there any inclination of what was to come as far as technology. Now, the 80s is known for for introducing rudimentary technology, uh, the VCR, the, I believe the LaserDisc was introduced in the late 80s. I could be wrong. Listeners, don't massacre me on that one. But was there any right. indication of the transformation that you have been a part of? Because you, you witnessed it firsthand from yeah. learning the techniques that were probably basically the same through the 60s, 70s, early 80s. And then, yeah. of course, everything changes. But was there any inclination of it? None. In your mind, this was how you were going to be making film for your entire career. Correct. Film, 65 millimeter was as big as it ever would get. And even that had gone out of fashion. And, uh, you, they were only using it for effect shots here and there. I mean, even when Star Wars hit, you know, the optical printer, that's what they were using. They were using the exact same optical printer techniques that Orson Welles used on Citizen Kane. Multiple layers of film put into a printer to create one final layer, everything on top of each other. And in the case of Star Wars, many, many, many times over. Miniatures have been done since King Kong. Before that, Force perspective miniatures, matte paintings. Oh my God, those go back to the 20s too. Um, you, so really, Star Wars, the one thing Star Wars added was motion control. So motion control was really the thing where you went, oh, wait a second, now a computer controls the camera rig so that you can do multiple passes on a miniature. But you still had to build the miniature. You know, everything in Star Wars was, was miniature or matte painting. Right. You just you just you know, there was nothing digital except some of the stuff on screens. Uh, there's a few digital things put on screens in the original Star Wars, like that that green uh, Death Star trench that they show the arrows going down before the attack like that was computer generated. Yeah. But that's really about it. So even then I was like, yeah, it's still film stuff. It's still the same thing we've always been doing. Miniatures, matte paintings, which I loved, by the way, because it was still in my imagination. In fact, my. My, between my senior year and my freshman year, I 
got an opportunity through my girlfriend whose dad had an association, blah, 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 with John Dykstra, who had done all the effects on the original Star Wars. He opened a company called Apogee down here after he left ILM, and he did Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I ended up getting a job there as a PA. So I got to learn all about the optical printers and the motion control systems. And uh, before I left there, I ended up getting uh, John let me shoot two sequences in the movie. And I got a special visual consultant credit, which was my first credit on a feature film. I, I took over. I learned a system at night. I stayed late at night and I learned a system from that was proprietary to to Dykstra. And the guy had to leave early and the movie was going over and I had learned it from him. And they brought in uh, Robert Wise, and Doug Trumbull and Dykstra and me and the guy, and they said, well, who's going to take over now that you're gone? And he said, Phil. And and Robert Wise looks over at me. Now, this is, right, the editor of, of Citizen Kane, the director of Sound and Music, West Side Story, Drama Strain, turns to me and goes, the kid? The fucking kid is going to shoot two sequences in my movie? No fucking way. Why? And he turns to Dykstra and he goes, what the hell is going on here? This is out of control. And he throws off Fit. And I just sat there. I had just shook his hand. It's Robert Wise. And he's calling me the fucking kid. So he stormed out. And Dykstra turns to me and says, do you know how to do it? I said, <laughs> yeah. He said, okay, you'll do it. And Trumbull said, fine with me. And they walked out. So the guy left and I shot two different sequences in, in the film. That is I mean, effect sequences. That is incredible. That's incredible. So I, yeah, so I even got, and this is before I even went my freshman year in UCLA. So I knew all about like the, I went into film school pretty up on effects and all the stuff that was happening. I mean, even post Star Wars, um, he started doing Battlestar Galactic after that and uh, at Apogee and uh, the original series. And um, so anyway, I was, God, I got to know all those guys that built all the models. And they had a lot of the uh, Star Wars models there um, that Lucas had let him take. But um, there was no indication of the digital revolution that was about to come. None. Um, it just wasn't happening yet. Uh, and if it was, it was certainly not on USC's radar or, 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 I mean, they weren't teaching, you know, computer animation. They weren't teaching any of that stuff or even discussing it. And I remember even a guy named Bob Abel. Bob Abel was an original CG um, computer graphics. He did commercials. Then he tried to get into effects work in films. And he had worked on the original Star Wars and it, and the, he had said he could do a bunch of it digitally and it, it failed. So even at that time, actually digital effects were kind of um, on the outs because of Abel's failure to make it happen for Star Trek, the motion picture. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. But um, and of course, Abel was right in the long run, but they but just was just the computers just weren't there yet. So yeah, no, I mean, VHS, you know, eventually VH cameras came out with giant VHS tapes and they looked like crap and you could, you know, just the technology, you got to remember the Avid, you know, was a huge, huge step forward in this process because suddenly when you could edit digitally, it, the next step was obviously to capture digitally. Yeah. And once you could capture digitally and go straight to edit, you took out a whole phase of filmmaking, you know, a whole section of it that became unnecessary, you know film, prints, dailies, negatives, you know, syncing sound, all that stuff. Speaking of editing, I'm glad you mentioned that mm -hmm. because that was something I wanted to talk to you about. Well, uh, well, yeah, it's a huge, believe me, I've edited movies on film. I've edited four of my movies on film and the other, 
five movies on film and four on avids and it is a huge difference i want to talk mm. about you know how editing has has changed over the years i want to talk about your introduction to editing but first and foremost i want you to explain to the listeners just how damn important the job of the editor is in filmmaking well you know we talked about i've talked about jaws a lot on your podcast and it's a very famous story so Spielberg is shooting jaws and it's supposed to be a 55 day shoot and every day that he's shooting he's going a day over schedule so he's only getting half a day's work done each day and it's a mess by all accounts by his account everyone's account it's a complete mess it's 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 just it's a super it's a really really hard i've done it to shoot on water and the mechanical shark was failing and we all know kind of the boat was sinking and all these kinds of crazy things but on top of which they were worried about how the film would edit together because they'd had so many difficulties. And there was a woman named Verna Fields and Verna Fields is a very famous editor, editor at the time. And she'd been around forever. And, uh, so instead, a lot of people wanted to fire Spielberg and instead of firing him, they sent Verna Fields out there and Verna Fields sat next to Steven Spielberg for the rest of the movie and made sure that he was getting all the pieces he needed and all the pieces she needed so that they can construct it properly later. And to this day, if you ever talk to him, and I'm sure it's in print in many places, he credits her for saving the movie. And if you look at the editing in that movie, it is, which I, again, I just watched yesterday again, it is spectacular. And it's not electronic, it's not digital, it's not Avid, it's not Adobe Premiere, it is splice by splice by splice by hand, on a Moviola, then later on a Chem, um, which is a flatbed editing system with film. And it is just so specific and so tight. And again, you just cannot ever underestimate what a great editor can do um, for a film. There's a great book called When the Shooting Stops um, by Ralph Rosenblum. He edited Annie Hall. And Annie Hall was, again, you know, later goes on to win Best Picture. It's an iconic film, et cetera, et cetera, was a complete and utter disaster. And it was a complete mess. And he is the one who sat down and restructured the entire movie um, in its kind of nonlinear sequence. He's the one that suggested to Woody Allen to add the stand-up pieces that tied it together. And that movie and the book is a fantastic—I really rec highly recommend the book— if you're familiar, watch Annie Hall, read the book, When the Shooting Stops. It was the book that taught me so much about editing. And you really see what an editor does. And he's very, very open and blunt about the problems and issues. And Woody Allen didn't care that he told, kind of revealed the dirt of the problems in the movie. And it all worked out. Another very famous story is Taxi Driver. It was a complete and utter mess, so the story goes. And a woman named Marsha Lucas married to a guy named George Lucas, came in, she was the supervising editor, and completely saved that film. Um, same is true for Apocalypse Now with um, Richie Marks and Walter Murch. Um, and a lot of people, you know, say the same thing on The Godfather, that the the edit, you know, there, there's it's really interesting. I mean, this is a true story, but I mean, I don't know how much credit Robert Evans should really take for it, but apparently... They had, you know, like the three-hour cut of The Godfather and all the studio people said, no, no, it's too long, it's too long. And even Coppola felt it was too long and they cut it down to two hours and it was a disaster. And uh, supposedly the story goes, Evan stood up and said, no, no way. We're going back to the old one. We're going back to the long one. Undo everything. The long one was the one, you know, plus or minus. 
And so anyway, editing makes or breaks movies. It's just all there is to it. You can, you, you know, Spielberg once said to me, and I'm sorry to mention him so many times, but I got to work with him for five years and I learned a lot from him. So I end up saying, Spielberg said to me, and it sounds really, probably sounds kind of douchey, like, you know, oh, Spielberg, Spielberg, but. <laughs> not at all, he, not at all. <laughs> he's a, he was a great teacher and a super great guy. And I loved, loved being around him. So anyway, he said, you know, it, it's just totally true. He said, these are, these are a couple of truths. He said, your shoot is made in prep. So if you have a good thorough prep, you'll have a good shoot. If your prep is rushed or messed up or discombobulated, you're going to have a rough shoot. And I've learned that to be totally true. He was right. He said, but your film is made in editing. So you may think, you may walk away from the shoot thinking you got it all, you got this, it worked, it's great, you know, cheering yourself across the finish line, the victory to the victory. But the truth of the matter is you make or break your movie in the way it's edited. And um, what I think, so just to make a little bit of a transition from what I think has changed a little bit now is that when you had to edit on film, your choices, you really had to consider your choices pretty carefully because when you took your raw footage, you would literally chop it up. You'd literally chop it with a like this guillotine machine, this little editing machine, and you would chop, splice it, and you'd put the other piece of film next to it, and you'd put tape over it, and you'd, you know, literally, and then you'd go to the next splice and you'd have to mark it with grease pencil and you chop it and then you put the next shot you want onto it shot by shot by shot. And you would have chopped up all your dailies, which is your raw footage and your scenes and sequences would all be little cuts and pieces of film going through the, the moviola or the chem physically. So it wasn't like you could say, all right, tomorrow let's start all over and just do a whole new edit, which you can do today because when you make a digital edit, you're not affecting anything at all. You can undo, you can redo, you can start over. Your dailies aren't harmed. There's no physical cutting of the film. Uh, there isn't even any film. It's all digitized. So you can actually have three editors working on the exact same sequence at the exact same time and then mix and match the edits. You can do a lot of different things, which they do, by the way, on, on a lot of big films. They'll have multiple editors working on the same thing and just kind of see what comes out the other side. Whereas on film... Every decision had to be considered because to undo it, you had to physically peel the tape off the splices. You had to put the piece of film back into the roll of your dailies film so that you could rewatch your original footage. You literally, if you're like, oh my God, we have to take apart this whole scene and start over, that could be a week. Whereas if you've cut all day long on a scene and the next morning you want to start fresh, it's literally clicking on a bin of digitized footage and starting over. And if you want to steal a piece that you edited from yesterday and drop it into the piece you're editing today, no big deal. On film, that was a big deal. So editing was very much threading the needle. You really needed to nail it and be have a vision of what you were trying to do from the outset because you couldn't just fish around for weeks and weeks and weeks and try to find it. Now you can fish around. Now you can fish around forever. And that's why you see these versions and all this different yeah. stuff, and, you know, because it's easy to do. And, and it's great in that it's, it's easier, it's faster. There's so many wonderful things. I, I like digi digital editing. I really do. The, 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 the ability to try things is fantastic. And the ability to, you know, to quickly turn around versions is also fantastic. But it also... Um, means that you're not, you don't necessarily have to consider your choices 
in the same kind of way that you had to on film. Making changes now is so much easier and so much faster than it used to be that interference and versions, one for the studio, one for the producers, one for the director, even one for the actor, um, is very, very common. Because, you know, it's just digitized. You use it or you don't. Whereas doing a version, um, I worked on a film one time where an actor wanted to do a version. And the studio said, no way. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Printing all the film for you and setting up an editing room for you and getting all the assistance and chopping it and putting it. And I said, no. It was just a no. And it was on an expensive movie. So it just wasn't even an option. Whereas now it's as simple as uh, transferring the footage, you know, to a, to another computer. No kidding. Okay. So it's really, really changed. Interesting. Okay. So how much time did you spend learning the process of editing while at film school? Quite a bit because you had to edit all your own material. So at all the, you know, so when we did the Super 8, you know, we edited our own stuff. And again, same thing on Super 8. You, you'd splice it, you'd chop it with the razor blade, and then, you know, you'd connect it to the next shot. And if it didn't work, you'd have to peel it apart, put it back together chop it again. And you'd sometimes end up with like three, four frames chopped. And you'd be trying to, you know, so it really, you better be sure where you wanted to chop it. Because if you blew it and you were just a few frames off, re-taping two frames to one frame to two frames, you know, you can imagine, sometimes it wouldn't go through the projector because it was too much tape and too many little frames pieced together in a row. So then you just have to make a whole new edit to get rid of what you screwed up. And remember, you don't have another copy. At least when you're shooting negative, you can print another piece of print because you're not actually editing the negative but on super eight it's reversal stock by that means there is no negative the thing you ran through the camera is what you get back from the lab so you're actually cutting up your original footage there is no chance to redo it and i've always felt really really lucky to learn editing that way because when i made a decision there was no second chance if i spliced in the wrong spot i was stuck I could end up stuck with that edit or an edit I didn't like to have to repair what I'd done and or reverse what I'd done or even a whole new shot structure. I'd be like, oh my God, I ripped up that shot with too many splices. The shot's dead now. So, and back then we didn't do two, three, four takes. Back then you did one take and moved on like, because film was so precious. It just, multiple takes wasn't even a, it's so funny. I didn't, not until I became a professional did I even understand multiple takes. Um, and uh, so you really had to target your decision making and thinking out in advance. A lot of times what I would do, and in fact, to this day, I still do my shot list this way for my movies. I would write out my editing pattern. I'd look at the footage and then I would write out my editing pattern, like go from the wide, then I'll go into the close up, then I'll go to the insert, then let's go back out like to the wide, hold through this dialogue, then go into the medium. And then we talk, the editor and I, or I'd just be, if I was on my own, I'd think it through, I'd look at the footage again, oh, maybe the... And I would do it on paper before I even made a splice because I couldn't go back. Whereas now, undo, undo, right? Command Z. <laughs> like you can just undo, start all over. And again, I love that because it was horrible when you screwed up. It was horrible. And I love, love digital editing. I, ha I enjoy it so much. But it is a different creative process. It just is. I don't want to jump ahead after film school, but I'm, if I don't ask this question now, I'm afraid I won't bring it up later. You talked about how the, you know, you did one take because film was precious. Yeah. Your first professional job, were you antsy or nervous about doing multiple takes or by that point where you settled into the fact that it was okay to do multiple takes? By the time I finished film school, 
they were allowing us to do multiple takes. So my last year, my last film, what's called Last Chance Dance, which was the 480, again, the one I referenced that that Spielberg's that got me my job, my first job in Amazing Stories. Um, that I had done multiple takes for. I'd done a lot of long takes, in fact, with no editing on that, um, inspired, as we discussed, by Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese and these guys that do, and Wells and Ford who do amazing long takes. And and uh, that was a whole theory, theory I had behind making that movie. So I had actually, you know, kind of broken, this is back in the Super 8 days, we didn't do multiple takes. Um, but am I, by, by the end of film school, I was doing more multiple takes. So interestingly enough, when I got to Amazing Stories, on my very first job, Spielberg had said to me, why don't you come out and watch me direct my first Amazing Stories? He was doing the very first episode. So I said, oh, you know, I had never been on a professional set. So he invited me. I, I didn't know what a grip and a gaffer and the prop guy. I mean, I really didn't even know the role. I'd always worked with three or four people, max, you know, on, we all did everything. So I went and watched and I learned what, you know, I went for like seven days and watched him, him do everything. I mean, from call to rap. And it was really great because I got to know everybody and I hung out and they were so gracious and everyone was like teaching me and showing me. And I really was, I mean, it was a whole new little film school thing because I, I never seen 60 people on a set before, you know? Um, and again, you got to remember there weren't making ofs back then. There wasn't YouTube where you could go look and see how they did it. There was no master class. You know what I mean? It was like you, you either read about it or experienced it. There was pretty much the only two ways to learn. And, um, pretty different from now when you think about it. Yeah. Um, and so he's doing, I'm watching Spielberg. This is on the take thing you, you mentioned. And he's like, okay, guy comes in the door, shuts the door, exits, cut. All right, next shot. I'm like, uh, he did one. And then he'd go and he'd do another take and the kid would come running down the stairs. He'd be like, oh no, I can, he always operated. I can do a little better. Let's go again, run down the stairs. He does two. He's doing one take, two takes, three takes, one take, two. And, and I'm like, wow. I mean, I wonder if he's trying to save film. <laughs> I'm trying to think what he's doing. So I ask him and he says, um, he says, you can only use one. He said, so if I waste my time doing eight takes of the guy coming through the door, I'm only going to use one of them. So when I got what I know I want, I move on. And uh, to this day, that echoes in my mind as I do too many takes on something. And and he, you know, he is the, probably I would say of all the major directors, by far and away the most efficient director working today. He comes in under on everything. He is a, well, Clint Eastwood would be the other one, who's, who's the man of very few takes, of one or two takes. And Stephen just rips through his shooting. Um, and I, I ended up watching him do it many times. And he, everyone knows, you're just not going to get a lot of takes. So when it came my turn to do my amazing stories, I had that in the back of my mind, like, oh my God, you know, I wanted it to be good. And so I was afraid. It's like, well, I'll just do as many takes as I have to, to get it right. And I'm thinking, you know, he's like, oh, you only need two or three and you're fine. And I'm like, oh my God, you know? So I was, I was actually really nervous um, that I, that I was back to my super eight days and having to do a, so few takes. Cause now I was hoping I would get to do more takes now that I was in the professional world, but he had this work ethic that you, you know, that it was a waste of time to do a lot of takes. So, and I mean, all directors have different theories. I mean, Kubrick used to love to do 50 takes. So there's really no right or wrong answer to it um, per se, but that's the way he worked and I was working for him. So I really, in my very first job, I, I was nervous about doing too many takes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So we'll, let's bring it back to film school. 
we've talked we've discussed editing we've discussed the the not seeing the the digital revolution that was coming in we talked about yeah. the, it being very cutthroat the competition so the question i've got a couple of questions before we wrap this up so the first one is tell me about <clears throat> were there any starstruck moments did any directors come in did you get an opportunity to meet anybody now i know that i realize you grew up in california so i imagine you know running into certain certain people it just would happen just the just the the laws of chance would would dictate that you would run into to to famous filmmakers from time to time but was there any a moment in the school where they brought someone in to speak to you or you got an opportunity to meet someone i mean was meetings I don't want to get to the Spielberg part just yet because I I know that story, but I want you to share it again when we when we get to that point. But were there any moments in film school where you got to meet some people that you were just amazed you got the opportunity to meet them? You know, in my three years at USC, nobody. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> they did not back then for whatever reason. I just don't know. It You know, I, I think USC wasn't really – a thing yet. We were in these broken down. I mean, we were in equipment from the fifties and sixties, 20, 25 year old equipment. The barracks were like keeling over. I mean, they eventually demolished them. It was the, the, the teachers were all the old guard that had taught Ron Howard and had taught George Lucas. I want to say John Milius. Um, they, they really were the sixties and they were that old guard of teachers were starting to, to move on. We're starting to retire. I was at the very end of those guys. In fact, the head of the school was named Mel Sloan and Mel's diner in, in American graffiti was named after him. Mel Sloan's the one famous for reading star Wars and telling George Lucas it would never work. <laughs> so it wasn't yet a popular destination. Um, we, I never met any professional filmmakers there, not one or screenwriters or, um, I'm one, funnily enough, one of my, one of my screenwriting teachers was Bob McKee before he was Bob McKee. He wasn't even doing his lectures and stuff yet. He was just teaching at USC. Um, you know, he hadn't written those books yet. And, and uh, so the popularity of being a film student at a at USC film school, or for that matter, any film school, I mean, UCLA's film school was totally seat of the pants. I never shook hands or got to meet or do any kind of instructional session with any professional filmmakers or cinematographers or editors or screenwriters. It was just the faculty. It was pretty cloistered. It was pretty interesting. That is interesting. It's so mm. different today now. You hear about the, the directors coming in, giving lectures and talks and screenings. Let's talk about the student film, the final film you make. Tell me, I've seen it, and I'm gonna, there's going to be a link there's going to be a link in this episode show notes that will bring people to your website so they can watch it. Let's talk about the importance of that film, the idea, where the inspiration for that film came from, how long it took you to make it, and uh, you know how was it received? Well, uh, the way it worked at USC was you, when you hit your senior year, when you hit your last year, you had fulfilled all your obligations. You could submit a script to the faculty, and uh, this is grad students and undergrad. And they would get about, um, I think, you know, like 120 or something scripts every year. And they would then narrow it down to about 25 scripts and on the first cut. And then you would come in and present uh, to the faculty how you intended to make the movie and kind of pitch it, so to speak, in front of all, you know, all of them. 
And then they would narrow it down to six, maybe seven finalists. And then those six or seven finalists would get to make a 20, 25 minute um, color sync sound 16 millimeter film. And that was the only sync sound film you were ever allowed to do at USC at the time. You, you did not, and if you didn't get accepted to make your film, you could still graduate. It wasn't a graduate graduation requirement, but you would never have left USC having made a dialogue-driven sync sound film, which I thought, frankly, was a little absurd. I mean, you it was, you know, it's not a cheap school. You It's hard to get into. It's supposed to be, at that time, you know, while it wasn't as popular a deal as it is now, I was like, what about all these kids that are leaving here without a sync dialogue film? I thought that was really weird. And talk about competitive. I mean, you know that every semester they would make six of these films. So you're sitting there knowing that only 12 a year out of the whole school are going to walk away. And that, by the way, was THX 1138 for, for Lucas. Um, that's the same film Ron Howard made. That's the same film Kevin Reynolds made. I mean, that's the same thing. Every director, Bob Zemeckis, um, every director who walked out of USC and, and became a early on, at least a feature film director in their careers, made a 480, made this 16 millimeter film sync sound. And so it was kind of like, to me, I, if I had to stay in college for 10 years, cause you could just keep re-enrolling if, if you didn't get, make the cut. So in fact, my very first try, uh, I did not make the cut. I, I, I did not make the cut down to 25. Um, and, uh, my first script was called what's so funny about peace, love and understanding inspired by Elvis Costello. And it was a uh, kind of a punk, you know, little kind of punk kid movie. And, uh, they did not dig it, I guess. And, uh, I didn't, didn't make the cut. So I had to re-enroll for another semester, even though I was done and could have graduated. I was like, Nope, if I don't leave with this film, film school was an utter waste of time because you'll have left with five super eight movies and a 60 millimeter non-dialogue black and white film. What do you, what do you, and they have a screening every semester of those six films for the public and all the agents around town show up for that screening. Everyone knows that. So if you don't get into that screening, you don't get to screen your final color film of those six. How are you even going to get people to see your movie? Um, you just be on the street. So, you know, at that point, three quarter inch and VHS had, had kicked in. So you could conceivably tote your film around on tape. It was rough. So everyone was competing for those slots. As I said, I didn't get in the first time. So what I did was I went to Mel, Mel Sloan, the head of the school and, uh, said, Hey, what, you know, what happened? Come, you know, my, my script didn't get picked. And he said, and he started giving me feedback. So I got some feedback and I understood literally kind of almost like how it would be writing for a studio. I realized what they were looking for. And I realized that if you didn't kind of write something in their wheelhouse, tonally, my original script was aggressive and dark and more Scorsese-ish. And I realized that just wasn't what USC was looking to produce. So I rewrote the idea and, and turned it into Last Chance Dance, and, and, uh, which was this kind of high school romantic comedy. And ran it by Mel and and uh, the gang and and eventually got picked. And I got um, I went down to the twenty five. Then I got picked for the final six. And so that was the end game, the ultimate goal of of going 
to that school at that time was to get to make that film. So um, went on to make that movie. And that was the, you know, that was the film that ultimately would launch my, my, my big break. That makes me want to ask a question. It was a question I wanted to ask you earlier. And I think, again, you've answered it wonderfully, I might add, about you talked about how much competition there was and how, again, I hate to use the word cutthroat, but very, very competitive, very competitive. What happens to the students who don't get to make the 480, who don't decide to do what you Mm do? I mean, are, 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 are there chances of breaking into the industry in any capacity? I mean greatly i mean obviously they're greatly diminished if they want to be a feature filmmaker but what happens to most i mean what what do you do with a film degree if you don't have this short film wow you know back then though i might add yeah it was really tough some people would go to apprentice you know try to apprentice in in an editing room uh some people would go try to get jobs on a set you know uh, starting out literally as second assistant camera pa even and work their way up. Some people turn to screenwriting, particularly the directors that didn't get to make the film. They would turn to screenwriting. And and back then it was easier to get spec scripts looked at and, and to pitch, you know, coming out of film school, you had, you know, some opportunities. And I, in fact, when I got, when I was, you know, got started quite a few of the people that I'd worked with, like I continued to collaborate with my DP, did rattle and hum with me. Um, my editor wrote a script with me for Disney. I, you know, I, I tried to bring, bring people along and, and some slowly, but surely worked their way up into editing, <clears throat> writing, uh, cinematography. And if, you know, a, one or two here or there worked their way up into, into directing, but most everybody who went into directing in their twenties or early thirties out of USC left with one of those films. It was really, it it really was the key to the whole thing. And if you had one of those, you could, you had a good chance of getting some representation. And then that gave you a good chance of getting a shot, whether it was in film or TV. So it really was almost, you had to have it, or you were going to be on a much slower burn of working your way up through the system. In in which case you may or may not even needed to go to film school (laughs) for that trajectory. But but that's how it worked out. To the best of your knowledge, and maybe you do know the answer, is that how it's done today? Is it still six finalists? Or is it the fact that things with the with the advent of digital technology and, I mean, people could shoot phone, I mean, shoot with their phone if they had to, you know, well, I'm saying. Thing. Yeah, that's I mean, the thing is now, I actually have no idea how they run it now. I mean, my guess is, is that they don't have, just because of the manpower needed in terms of the faculty to manage and oversee the making of, uh, cause it, you know, that you make it over like a, a semester, you know, so over a 20 week period, you'd prep it, you'd shoot it, you'd cut it. And they were constantly giving you feedback and supervising and doing all that kind of stuff. I mean, I ended up in a, unfortunately in a big, <clears throat> shall we say a disagreement with my instructors at film school over that feedback. But the, I don't know what they do now. And I'm sure they have to limit the volume because it's just, you know, it's like making too many movies at once just becomes a mess. And then no one's really learning anything. But I, my film ended up having kind of a slightly infamous final trajectory. Can you go into it at all? Any details at all? Sure. Uh, I haven't told you the story. No, I actually haven't heard this story before. Please in, in, indulge me, please. Uh, well, so when I made Last Chance Dance, I had noticed that 
the biggest problem with a lot of the 480s, these long form 16 films, were were the performances. Was that you were getting, you know, college actors or people, you literally put ads like in Drama Log or, you know, these little teeny magazines and try to get anybody to act. It's really hard to get people to like show up week after week after week because you would only shoot on weekends. You were only allowed to shoot on weekends and it would take, yeah, probably eight, 10 weeks of shooting. So you really needed someone to commit for a couple of months. So it was hard. And I noticed that the biggest downside, because as I was in the school, I would always go and watch the making of these, these 480s and was the acting. The acting was just not good. So you'd have someone who knew how to shoot or the cinematography or the editing or that, but the acting, and of course, with any kind of film, if the acting's not very good, it pretty much ruins the movie. And so I came up with this theory that instead of doing a lot of coverage of scenes, because they only gave you a limited amount of film. So say they would only give you like two, 3,000 feet of film each weekend. And what people would do is they would, they would go out and shoot short takes of all this coverage, but the performances were never very good because they didn't have enough film to do it over and over and over again. So to get the, even if they, I don't know if the actors could even get there, but they, they certainly didn't have the opportunity to keep doing it. And none of us did. So I thought maybe the better way to do this is to do like Coppola and Scorsese and Spielberg and Woody Allen and do long takes, like Susan Kane, John Ford, long takes, tracking long takes with no cuts. And instead of getting little pieces of performances that aren't that good, do the one long piece as many times, like 10 times until it's good. And then I would have that one long piece that was good and the performances were good and it all flowed. And I knew when I went back, I had it. I didn't have to rely upon somehow piecing it together when I didn't have enough takes or coverage to get it right. So this kind of leads us back to what I was saying. I, I, by the end, I was doing, certainly doing more than one take. And so I would do, you know, sometimes 10, 12, 13 takes of the scene, but I would do it all in one. And then I would do no coverage. So naturally, the teachers at the school thought this was editorial suicide because when you come to cut your movie together, you literally have nowhere to go because I didn't do any other shots I could cut to just my long takes. And while I didn't do every scene that way, probably a, a, quite a bit of, of the, the movie or the short was were long takes with no <laughs> coverage. So they bring you back to school and they make you show your dailies. So take after take after take of the exact same scene would come up and the teachers would go crazy. They say, where's your coverage? I said, I didn't do any. But why? And then I explained my acting theory. They go, but it doesn't matter because when you pace the movie out and you put it all together, if it's too long or slow, you're going to have no way to cut it down. I said, I know I'm taking that gamble. Like, well, that's not going to work. He said, well, I don't know. I said, it's film school, right? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I mean, it's not like, you know, we're going to lose our investment here. It's film school. But they got upset with me and week after week kept berating me and badgering me into doing coverage. And I will admit I refused in most cases where I didn't think it was needed. And, and it was, and I liked how it was working out. So anyway, we put the whole thing. So I did it my way. They particularly Mel Sloan, the head of the school was, who was also the editing teacher was particularly angry with me and uh, made his feelings known in front of the whole school because the whole school would come to critique your dailies. 
and everyone thought I was crazy. So I, I put the movie together and lo and behold, the movie came out at about 33 minutes. The limit was supposed to be 25 minutes, but they had let movies go 28 minutes and 20. I had shot a movie for another person the year before that was 30 minutes. So it was really a vague rule, but because I had argued with them the whole semester about doing these long takes uh, with very little coverage. They decided to make a point and say, now you see, Phil made the mistake of doing no coverage and now he has to cut it down to 25 minutes and we're going to all witness what this is going to do to his movie. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm sticking with my 33-minute cut. It was my final locked cut. I showed it. They said, fine, great, cut it to 25. And I said, no. And they said, if you don't cut it to 25, we will not give you the negative. And if we don't give you the negative, obviously you can't make a print and you'll never be able to show this to anyone and it will never see the light of day. We own the copyright. That's that. I had no choice. So what I did was I, uh, <laughs> I didn't really re-edit the movie. I just went in and I lifted entire scenes out until I was down to 25 minutes, not caring if the movie made any sense or not, because I was conversely going to make the point that hitting a time, an arbitrary time will, yes, fit the rules, but will obviously hurt the storytelling and the film itself. And I didn't do it. I, I did it like as, as intelligently as I could, I meaning I knew it would be obvious if I just did it, you know, belligerently like, oh, look, if I take this out, it'll make no sense. So I really did try to keep it as, as coherent as I could, but I, I just lifted rather than chopping it because actually I really couldn't. But anyway, so I did what they said and I showed the movie in our final week of school and I waited for them to go, okay, fine. It makes no sense. You, you know, we've made your point. You, now you know why you don't do that. Go ahead and put it back the way it was. And instead they said, no, good, perfect. You're done. You get a C and you're done and goodbye and good luck. So that was my last week of film school. And I was, and all my crew that worked with me and the actors and everyone were devastated because essentially the movie now stunk. It was unwatchable and actually made no sense. Like things were set up and never paid off and payoffs were never set up. And you know, you can't just take a quarter of the movie out with straight lifts and it just didn't make sense. So school, so over the summer you were supposed to, you know, they would give you your negative and you can make a print. But what I did was before they, passed out the negative, um, I put the film back the way it was. And, the, and it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird little detail, but the way it had to work was you would turn in your movie, the work print to them. So they would hold the work print so you couldn't change it. And then they would give you the negative. So the only way you could get the negative was by giving them your cut. So that way they made sure you wouldn't make any changes. It was very draconian. I mean, it was serious. Like you turned it in and they would hand the boxes of negative back over to you. So I was like, okay. So I knew I was in trouble. So I cut the movie back out to 33 minutes secretly at school. You could go in at night and stuff. Everything was always open. You just walk in and do it. And I just, it was really took me like one day to put it back out. Cause I had done these, these simple lifts. And, uh, anyway, I had a friend who had a key to the <laughs> negative room and he helped me out and we went in at night and I like to say I borrowed the negative of my film. And then I went and I cut the negative and I made prints and I made 
videotapes of it. And then um, when the date came for me to turn over the film, I brought the film in and I handed it to Mel and he could tell by the size of the reel that it was back to 33 minutes. And he says, what's this? And I said, it's my edit. And he said, my final edit. And he said, no, this is obviously back to 33 minutes now. I'm not going to give you the negative. And I said, that's okay. And he was like, what do you mean that's okay? And I said, fine with me, then don't give me the negative. And I left and he thought I was had lost my mind. And obviously he went and checked and the negative was gone. So there was a lot of drama after that. <laughs> and uh, they tried to confiscate the film and they tried to, uh, they put an injunction on me to never be able to screen the film ever again. And they wanted the negative back, which I returned to them. And they wanted all prints and they wanted all videotapes back. And I said, no. And so then they had these lawyers after me to try to get it back. USC lawyers were writing me letters saying, you have to give it back or we're going to prosecute you because they hold the copyright. And so I could never screen it ever again without their permission to anybody. And so what I did was I called up the dean of the entire school, not the film school, the entire school. And I just harassed them until I got an appointment. And I went to this guy and he, I got in his office that summer and I told him the story and he said, that's crazy. What, why would, why would they, what is your movie? Like, what is it like a movie about child molestation? Is it a porno? Is it like, what did you do this? And he literally said to me, that story makes no sense unless your movie has something in it so egregious that they needed to shut it down. And I'm sorry, but I don't believe that they would just shut you down like that over like you know, eight minutes of, you know, and especially when the rule wasn't enforced up until you anyway. And I said, exactly. He goes, so what did you do? And I said, well, I happen to have the movie right here, VHS. He said, and he had a VHS player. And I said, can I pop it in? He said, absolutely. So all you need to do, anybody out there listening, if you care, just watch the first four minutes of Last Chance Dance. It is the most benign, <laughs> little, cute, little loner kid falls in love with the wrong girl high school story you've ever seen. I mean, it's actually embarrassing how kind of sweet and saccharine it is. And, uh, you know, I mean, with Buddy Holly songs in it, it's ridiculous. And the guy went, are you kidding me? I said, no. And he goes, all right, let me get into this. And he shut him down. That's incredible. And he, sh he shut him down and he told him to stand down and all the stuff had gone on without his knowledge. And, uh, they had also blocked me from the big screening, of course. They told me I couldn't be in the big screening that all the agents come to. And the dean of the school said, not only are you going to let him have his prints and stuff, but you're going to put him back in that screening. And that screening is the way Steven Spielberg heard about my movie. That is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard in my life. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. The kicker was Mel. I saw Mel when it was all over. And he turned to me and said, you know what? Phil, I was trying to help you and teach you a lesson because your film is way too long. No one will watch it and you will never get a job with that movie. So how long after Mel told you you're never going to make it in the business, were you on the set of Amazing Stories? Six months. Six months. And did he know that you were on the set? Did he know that you were working with Spielberg? Oh, yeah. And did you ever have any contact with him again after that? Oh, no. I was persona non grata, as you can imagine. I mean, Mel eventually retired, not, not that short, shortly thereafter, actually, two or three years later, maybe. And I look, I mean, technically speaking, I, I, I broke the rules and, and that, and I don't, people can hear this story and think, sounds like kind of a dick, you know, this guy, like 
not doing it his own way and not listening to teachers and doing your stuff. And that may well be true. <laughs> but I, and I think that's how they perceive me. I think they perceive me as a big jerk, pain in the ass, asshole. But I have been raised watching Spielberg and Scorsese and Kubrick and, and Lean and, and Orson Welles and Coppola doing the things I was trying to do. You know, and in a very, very benign way. I mean, that's the thing is you really have to look at the context if you, if you know, again, and I'm not wasting anybody's time. But if you look at even a few minutes of the movie, you'd be like, oh my God, for this? You know, it was, it, 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 this was not, this is pretty benign. I, you know, I definitely pushed it, but I had a theory behind it. And there was, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, I didn't have, I wasn't randomly being obstinate. I had a cinematic point of view I was trying to execute and see if I could do or not. And if I didn't, I felt like, well, the failure would be on me, right? The failure would be no one would like the movie. I wouldn't have any opportunities for a career. And the ultimate kind of justice would be my failure because I was, my hubris took me down. And, and I kind of thought, why don't you guys just let me fall on my face if I'm so wrong? But it became personal and um, it became making a point, I think in front of the other students, and it became about precedent, and it became about all those things that happen in institutions, you know, both education, government, we all know, like rules are rules, and even though some people get to break the rules, if you're not well-liked, you don't get to break the rules, and so, yeah, I was, uh, I was not, um, I never heard a word uh, back from USC. Well, that answers, I've got two final questions, and I think you've just answered the first one. And that is, have you ever gone back there to speak to the students or, or, or have any discussions throughout your, your, your career? So I'm, I'm only, just... only one time a documentary teacher that I loved, Mark Harris, who went on to win Oscars as a documentary filmmaker. He's a wonderful man. He and I always got along great. He was a big mentor for me and a huge supporter through all of this, by the way. And he kept telling me, do what you got to do. Don't, you know, he was, he was kind of more of a, you know, he was the documentary teacher, so he was off to the side. You know, he wasn't like that. And uh, he invited me back to screen. I had done, uh, you know, that age seven and 14 up yeah. in America. And I, I, he invited me to go screen that. And talk, very small class. And that's it. And, and, and that's it. I mean, but I'm sure, you know, I mean, I haven't reached out. And I'm sure that the current configuration, you know, would is, is totally different than you got to remember. We're talking, geez, what are we what are we looking at here? Um, I graduated in 1984, so looking at 34 years ago, 34 years ago. So a lot has changed at USC in 34 years, and and I and I think that you know it's uh in in many look it may what I like to say about USC is this: had I not gone to USC specifically USC, and had I not made that film, and had I not been challenged to stick to my guns and do it the way I did it, um, I would not have gotten the break I got. And I would not have been directing in my 20s. That's all there is to it. So the, the, the proof ultimately is in the result. The result is USC, I had a great experience with some of my fellows, you know, fellow students, mainly the people I worked with constantly on, on films. I really learned a lot from various instructors there. And, and I did get hands-on experience. And had I not, and I'm not saying this because I have no relationship with USC. So it's not even, I truly, truly know for a fact that had I not gone through all that, and had I not gotten to make that movie, I wouldn't change a thing about it because that's what put me. I mean, I would say a month after Mel told me I wouldn't get a job, I was sitting Steven Spielberg. And, and that's that's in his office. That's where I want to bring this full circle. At the beginning last week, at the beginning of the episode, I asked you to name the films that inspired you. And you met mm -hmm. the very first film you mentioned was Jaws. 
Mm-hmm. Jaws led you on a journey that landed you eventually into the office of the man who made the film. Mm-hmm. And please tell me just about what it was like the first time you met Steven Spielberg. Well, what happened was after my film screened, a few days afterwards, I got a call at home and it was on, you know, my family line. And uh, my mom answered and said, Philip, it's, she looked white as a gush. It's Steven Spielberg. And I was like, uh-huh. So I get the phone <clears throat> and I think, oh, it's one of my friends screwing around. You know what I mean? Like, hello. And he says, you know, Philip, this is Steven Spielberg. And I had seen him on TV and stuff enough. I immediately recognized his voice. And I mean, I came with within inches of, of just passing out. I couldn't even believe my ears. And so I just stunned. I was like, uh-huh. So I saw your film and I really enjoyed it. And, and I, you know, uh, um, I got to watch it with Bob Zemeckis and Kathy Kennedy the other night. And we all really just, you know, thought it was funny and fun. And I'd love to meet you. And I was like, uh, of course. Um, yes. Uh, I'm just stammering. He says, uh, you know, literally, like, what are you doing tomorrow at 10? I said, nothing. <laughs> I mean, at this point, you know, I'm out of school. I, you know, I'm waiting tables at a local restaurant. I got nothing going on. And uh, so I went down and I'm driving through the gates of Amblin Entertainment on the back lot of, of Universal, uh, a lot I'd never been on other than the tour. <laughs> So now I'm driving past the tour buses and I'm, oh my God, I'm on a huge, ba- I mean, I'd never been on those lots. I had no in at those places and they invite me in and I meet Kathy Kennedy and I meet uh, a woman named Deborah Newmeyer, who is his development executive. And then they say, oh, come on in. And they lead me in and into his office, which is just so cool. It's filled with all this memorabilia and it's like, you know, it's, I, I don't know if you've ever seen photos of it, but it's of, of the compound, but it's kind of like a, a Santa Fe kind of Western kind of style and very homey and really cool, really, really awesome offices. And it's like sits on a couch and he couldn't be more casual and comfortable. And, you know, he's just totally relaxed and just a guy you're meeting, he had no, no pomp or circumstance or ego or attitude or like, well, so I saw your, no bullshit. Just a, and he comes and says, oh God, you know, we start talking about the movie. And the nice thing is for me is that once someone starts, as you can see from me going on like this, once someone's talking to me about movies, I can talk about movies for just about as long as you want to. (laughs) And I mean, I could go on for hours. I could probably, um, you know, do, do a nice fil- movie filibuster if I had to. But so he starts talking about movies. And I'm talking movies. And of course, I immediately, you know, shift over to his films and how they inspired me. And I tell him the Jaws story. And I literally say to him the very thing you just pointed out. I said, you cannot believe what this means to me. And I just had to tell him because I'm thinking I may never meet him again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know what he wants. He didn't offer me anything. He didn't say anything. He just wanted to meet me. And it could just be a meeting for the heck of it. And uh, say, nice job, and that's that. And I I say, you know, I saw Jaws, and I watched it five times, and I took photographs, and I recorded it, and I put it up my bulletin board, and I studied it and studied it, and his jaw dropped. He, he literally s- sat there stunned for me. He goes, you took pictures of, I said, yeah, of every single shot in the movie, and then I put them in order, and then I <laughs> recorded it, and then I watched it. And he's like, are you kidding? I said, no. So I still have some of them. And, and, and back then I still had some. I've since have lost them all. I don't know how. And uh, I brought a few in next time I saw them and showed them the pictures just to prove it that I wasn't, I still had some. 
And um, he said, I have never heard of anything like that. I said, well, that's how much I respect your work. And that's how much you inspired me to, to go to film school and make this film. And, and I started rattling off like what he did in this movie and that movie. When I think about this shot and the tracking shots and the, the you know, cause I'd memorized his movies. And he just was like, I honestly think that by the end of it, he was more bewildered than I was because out came, I just flooded out like everything I ever thought and felt about filmmaking and his work. And I mean, you're literally, it's pretty cool. It's really neat. It's a really cool thing when you're sitting in front of somebody who you legitimately 100% respect like to your core and who whose work impacted your life. It's, it's actually, once you get on topic, it's pretty, it just, it's no bullshit, right? I didn't have to make anything up. I don't have to go, you know, so, um, I love Transformers five. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, I don't, you don't have to make anything up, you know? And so we connected and he said, you know what? Um, I'm doing this new series called amazing stories. And I'd heard of it, the announcement. He said, uh, and I've got an episode that I think would be great for you. Would you be interested? I mean, I'm just like, are you even asking? You know, and I said, uh, of course, yes. I he said, well, here's the script. Take a, take a read and, and, and see what you think. And it was Santa 85, the first episode I did for him. And I, of course, read it as soon as I got home and called the next morning and uh, told him I loved it. And he took my call. I mean, it's bizarre. I loved it. And he, I loved it. He goes, great, great. Well, that's, you know, I'll have, uh, we'll call your agents and uh, we'll make a deal. And that was that. That was that. Yeah. That's an incredible. It's shocking. It's shocking. I mean, I could live my life a million times and it would never play out the same again. Do you know what I mean? When you think about it, it's one of those things where like, Every single teeny thing had to click. You know, if it had been a year earlier, there wouldn't have been amazing stories. Yeah. And he wasn't going to offer me a movie, you know, yet. And if it had been two years later, there wouldn't have been amazing stories. Or maybe he would have been off shooting a movie. Or maybe, you know, there's so many. Maybe I would have gotten the negative. Maybe the film stunk. Maybe this, that, or the other. I mean, there's so many ways I don't end up there. I've always thought to myself, I, I, I could never go back and live it again and have it play out the same way. It just wouldn't. Uh, there were too many moving parts. It was pretty, pretty unbelievable. It was a dream come true for it for a kid, for a little kid, young kid sitting in this dark theater watching Jaws, and those first notes come up, and I go, wait a second, to then be able to sit in front of him and work with him. I worked there for five years, and um, it was pretty special. That's outstanding, Phil. That was probably one of the best conversations I think you and I have had. And we've had some really, <laughs> really good conversations. We yeah, talk, had some good ones. Uh, that was, uh, I don't even know how to, I, that one word I can think of just inspiring. I mean, that yeah. was inspiring. And I hope everyone listening that is, you know, has a dream and wants to pursue it. I mean, the lesson I picked up from this one is if you have a vision, if you have an idea of what you want to do and there are obstacles in your way and you can see past those obstacles. I'm not saying you should break into the, uh, you know, the break room <laughs> at work and, and, but, but it, it was just so inspiring that you stuck to your guns and, 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 and look what happened. So thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences on the show. Uh, I look forward to having you back really soon. I know there's a lot of conversations that we, We've been having off air that I want to touch on in, in subsequent episodes. So, so thanks for being on. How is this movie? And we'll talk soon, Phil. Thank you. Oh, thank you. 
The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find Find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.